I want us to go back, uh, as we go back to James, we're going from this life now and the struggles that we face, and we're going to go back to the first century. And uh, um, when the early church, when the church began at the outpouring of God's Spirit in Pentecost in Acts 2, the early church grew rapidly. In the first day, there were thousands saved. Um, among them were many who had gone to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. Because there were so many people there, there were those there who had needs. Travelers who hadn't planned on staying and being discipled and becoming a follower of Jesus. Maybe some who hadn't even heard about Jesus. And so it was common for all of, among all those new people there that there were needs. And so what did believers do as believers had need? Well, the same thing that you and I, by God's grace, would do if our brothers and sisters had needs. They, it says in Acts 2.45, they, they sold their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And I'm sure that that's what we would do if we knew that the kings had a need. We would sell what we had and we would give it to them, right? We care for one another. And Acts 4, 34 to 37 describes this. There was not a needy person among them. Isn't that incredible? There's no one hungry. There's no one who didn't have a place to stay. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him, and brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is just a beautiful picture of the generosity of the early church, as, as this new body of, of, of believers submitted to the Lordship of Christ were taking care of, of one another. Now, it's possible that some of those that James is writing to in, in, in this letter had been there in, in, in Jerusalem, part of that early church, I imagine some of them were, experiencing this kind of generosity, experiencing this body of believers that was loving them and taking care of their needs. And yet it seems that maybe what happened was that persecution scattered them. And so they went from, from, um, from Jerusalem back to northern Israel, their home cities, and there they planted churches. But there weren't rich Christians there to be selling their land and taking care of them. And so they suffered poverty as they went back. They were persecuted by the rich earlier in James and it was a while ago in James 2, verses 6, six through 7. Uh, James... Um, rebukes these, these Christians. Some of them, I'm, 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 I'm sure he knew he had met, had been, been part, part of the church, uh, the, 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 the church there at one point. He rebukes them for showing favoritism. Because what would happen would be when a rich person came in to, to visit, they would be kind of like, whoa, we got to pay attention to this guy. And you can imagine if you're actually hungry, that that would be a real temptation. James kind of slaps them around with some common sense, though, in James 2, 6 through 7. And this just is getting us ready for, for, for the background of this passage. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called the name of Jesus? The rich are, are persecuting you. They're dragging you into court. They are, they are stealing from you. When they come into your church service, yeah, greet them. Be eager for them to get saved. But why are you showing them favoritism over a poor person? See, in the scattered cities that they were, these Jewish Christians were easy prey for the rich. Jews were protected by the Roman Empire. They were allowed to, 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 to follow their, their religion. But Christians were kind of seen as a break off of Judaism, and they didn't have the same protections that the Jews did. Now, these were mostly Jewish Christians, but they served a different king. Jesus was their Lord. And so the, the, the rich looked upon these Christians as, as easy prey. They could be taken advantage of. And that's to give a little context um, for, for, for this morning's passage, which, uh, which, which our brother Hyun read. James is writing to comfort Jewish Christians that God was going to punish those who abused wealth. 
Now, in our last two weeks in, in, in James, we saw James warn the churches of pride. In James 4, 11 through 12, we saw James confront the pride of judging others and, 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 and speaking against them. Last week in James 4, 13 and 17, we saw James rebuke the confidence we can have as we make plans and, 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 and as we assume the success of those plans rather than start with what God's instructions to us are. So it's kind of been a mini-series on pride, very different ex- expressions of what, whether judging someone and slandering them, whether the pride that we look at our calendars and making plans. And here he's going to focus on the pride of of the rich, that, that, that focus in, that, that confidence in wealth, in independence, in freedom, doing whatever you want, oppressing whoever you want because you think you are rich. Um, so in James 5, 1 through 6, James is going to continue to, to, to address pride, but he's really going to focus on the godless rich, those who weren't following Jesus Christ, those who think that they have, their riches have made them untouchable, that they're free to act as they wish. So in James 5, 1 through 6, James announces God's judgment on the rich for their mismanagement of his resources. Okay? It's God's announcing God's judgment on the rich for their mismanagement of his resources. So if uh, you were reading along and as uh, our brother Hyun started reading, it starts off pretty strong. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming up, uh, upon you. So it's an announcing uh, of, of, of judgment. And he's going to explain the reasons why. But there's a couple so that's here. So, so, so we're going to respond in different ways. One way that, by God's grace, we're, we're, we're going to respond is that the godly oppressed are going to be comforted by God's justice, okay? God is just, and those who are in a right relationship with God can look forward to his justice. And we'll talk more kind of how, how we apply that. It's also possible that there are even here this morning the godless rich who need to repent. You may look like a Christian, you may sound like a Christian, um, but you may have in your heart money rather than God, and you need, to, you need to repent. This message is going to apply to you. There's also an application from this that God's people would manage resources in an appropriate way, that we would manage God's resources appropriately. Uh, 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 Appropriately, excuse me. So, three applications. For the godly oppressed to be comforted, for the godless rich to repent, and that God's people would manage resources in an appropriate way. And that's something we have to do with this passage, and we'll talk more about this, because we're talking about the rich, and you might look at yourself this morning, and you see, I'm not rich, but the reality is, for most of us, we really are the world's rich. If James were able to spend a day, I think, I don't know, Probably most of our houses, he would say, oh yeah, you are rich. Okay? So when there's this warning to the rich, we'd be kind of silly to not listen to it. Okay, so let's uh, start here first with the announcement of God's judgment upon the rich in verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming, are coming upon you. The rich, he says, are facing eternal judgment. There's, min- there's miseries coming. Agony is on its way, he says. This, James calls them to weep and howl. Now that's the kind of screaming that would be appropriate if you were outside on the train tracks with your foot stuck inside one of those train rails and there's an oncoming train honking its horn, bearing down upon you. Hopeless terror. You should weep and howl. People use wealth to keep themselves safe, but that wealth will be useless on the day of judgment. Now, the same word weep we had seen in James 4, 9, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to, 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 to gloom. Now, the main recipients of this command, unlike that, are... Um, are not the rich among the church. 
This is a literary device that James is doing here called an apostrophe. An apostrophe. He's talking to someone for the benefit of those who are present. Talking to someone who's not present for the benefit of those who are present. So James is kind of, he's doing like Old Testament prophet here. He's shouting out Babylon, except it's not Babylon. He's shouting out rich, right? He's talking about the people who really weren't part of that church about the judgment that is coming coming on to them. Now though, um, this, this announcement of judgment is written for the benefit of God's people present. As we are, many of us though, rich in, in the history of the world, even in the current world, right? As compared to many in the world, we, we kind of, we'd be foolish not to listen. There were rich there in the churches that James were writing to. And you can imagine, maybe it's one guy among 20 Christians who's actually rich, who has more than he needs, and he starts hearing this. Come now, you're rich. And he's probably maybe tempted to kind of look around. He's like, wait, is this to me? And we're going to kind of think more about that. What do we do with this announcement of judgment if you are those who've been saved by God's grace in Jesus Christ? But first of all, let's talk about what, what, what made someone rich in, in, in Bible times? What made someone rich? So the rich were those who, who had more than what was typical, more than what was normal. And we use our English word rich like that. It's, it's a very relative word. It, it, it depends upon what is normal for a certain group of people, right? Um, um, in 21st century America, we use the word rich in general is someone who is independent and has enough independence to buy what they want. They can actually live where they choose. They can drive whatever they like to drive. They can go on whatever vacation they want to. If that describes you, probably lots of people in America would think you are rich. In the first century, though, the rich were, didn't have that much freedom. They were distinguished as those who had more than, more than what they, they needed, who didn't worry because they had money saved. Okay? The rich were those who had more than they needed and who didn't worry because they had money saved. Jesus' parable in Luke 12, 19 describes what the rich might say. Now, this is one example of what it means to be rich in the first century world. Soul. The, the man in the parable says, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and, and be merry. If you could stop working and know that you were taken care of for the next year or two, you are rich. The rich young ruler in Mark 10, 22 says he went away sorrowful for he had great, great possessions. If you, have, if you in that world had a lot of stuff, you, are, you were rich. Mark 12, 43 to 44 um, Jesus tells the parable, Truly I say to you, the poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. If you can put into the offering box everything you have to live on, you are currently poor. If you give out of your abundance, knowing that you could give more if you wanted to, you're, you're rich in the first century world. Now, in these examples, the rich had surplus. They had more than they needed. Most of us are one of those kinds of rich, either money with, with, with surplus, we could give more if we wanted, or we've got a lot of stuff. Now, I know that America can be kind of a confusing place um, because you can invest a lot of money in a lot of stuff and even being in debt trying to buy all that stuff. So in a sense, you may not be rich, but you still may be rich because of all the stuff that you have, right? So, so in human history, most of us are the rich. Now, the word rich is, uh, is often synonymous in Scripture with wicked. Now, it's, it's not always true. It's not always used that way. But often, talking about the rich in Scripture, you would be thinking about the uh, wicked. 
as, as, as one writer says, we cannot overlook the fact that the rich and the unrighteous are so easily, uh, are so easily uh, associated. And that's many scripture references. Many times in God's word, the rich are the wicked, which puts us as the world's rich in kind of an awkward place, right? Is that us? The rich in scripture, though, often gathered rich, and it's a very different world, by stealing land, which hopefully you haven't done. By exploiting workers, which hopefully you haven't done, uh, at least not intentionally, although I know it can be tricky kind of following where our stuff is, is made and by whom, but at least not intentionally, you are paying whoever is gardening your garden. Um, the rich in scripture use their power unjustly to get more wealth. They would go to court and bring people into courts and use their influence against them. The wicked in scripture, and this is something often said about them, they hoarded wealth and ignored need. So mark of wickedness is, is hoarding wealth and ignoring need. So many of us listening here today, uh, James would describe as rich, so how should we respond to this command to weep and wail because of coming judgment? Now, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you know that Jesus is your Savior, that he died in your place, that if you were to come into judgment, you would know that you, God has accepted you in Christ Jesus, um, it's natural that you would kind of look over this warning, Right? Um, because you're comforted by your faith in Jesus Christ. You know that God's wrath, which is what we're going to celebrate in, 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 in the Lord's Supper, has been poured out on his son instead of you. So, in a sense, we don't have to listen. But I think we would make a mistake if we stopped listening. Because it's possible that you might find yourself characterized by some of the sins that James is going to describe here. Some of them are very easy to fall into if you are rich by, by this historic world standards as most of us are. So if these sins describe you, you have to ask yourself, and we're going to look at them, are you the rich facing judgment? And if you find yourself guilty and unwilling to repent, you have to ask yourself, am I facing the same judgment? Now, you might, we might get through these verses and you say, that, that doesn't describe me, just as I hope Jesus is my salvation. Or you might have to look and say, you know, um, I've, I, I've been believing that Jesus is my Savior, but these sins are describing me. So what do you do? Well, you flee to Christ, right? You, you go to Christ and say, God, I am willing to repent of my sin. I'm willing to put my hope in your Son, he is my savior. He died in my place. So I just want to kind of talk through that because I don't know if these verses are going to describe you or not. I find it's, 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 it's convicting talking about money. So I want you to have the hope of Jesus Christ, but I also don't want you to say, I don't need to listen because Jesus has saved me. So let's look. So that was the announcement of God's judgment in the first verse. And now we're going to look at why this judgment, why, why this, this judgment that, 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 that's oncoming, these eternal miseries, why this judgment is just. So we're going to look at the justice of God's judgment upon the rich next. So the first judgment, there's judgment for hoarding in verses 2 and 3. He says in, in 2, in the beginning of verse 3, Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have, have corroded. James pictures whatever wealth they had here as ravaged by time. They, it, it, he kind of like fast-forwards into the future. Their wealth is rotten. It's moth-eaten. It's rusty. Even gold and silver, which when pure, don't. Don't rush you. If there's any chemist here, you don't say, ah, oh, the Bible got it wrong. No, he's, he's just saying even the unrustable, even, even that, that which doesn't suffer corrosion is, is corroded by time. It's all falling apart. 
He's saying to them, this treasure that you had, you thought was permanent, but it's transitory. Your, your, Your valuables were just vanity. And James uses the perfect tense here. If you're a grammar geek, you know what that is. The perfect tense to indicate that this has already happened. Even if you can't see it yet, your riches have rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. He says, I can see it. They're already falling apart. This announcement should be shocking. Your your suit that you do on your deal-making days is full of holes. Your jewelry is flaking apart. The load-bearing walls of your houses have been decimated by termites. Your Tesla is currently junk. Your bank accounts have been zeroed out. The passwords to your cryptocurrencies have been compromised. Past tense, all of that, he says to the rich. And their corrosion, he says, all of that flaking apart and rust is going to be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You know, as Hyun was reading that out loud, like it really says that. Like, like James goes kind of, kind of intense here. The rust and decay, he says, is going to be evidence against you. The rich are called uh, to, to account for wealth. Money is not meant to be hoarded. Such waste is evidence of mismanagement. Corrosion. Now, that's... And we're not even getting here, is there wise savings? This is talking about having an abundance that is wasting away. Corrosion is not only evidence used against you. It says it guarantees punishment. This, 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 this waste is going to eat your flesh like fire. What you hoarded becomes the fuel which you are eternally burned. You can imagine for a second all the stuff that you dreamt about having and all the stuff you purchased in life and all the stuff you put money into and if you were to suddenly die is a great big pile and you're at the top being burned for eternity. He says you've laid up treasure in the last days. The rich fail to realize it's the last days. This is the final act of human history. When when, when Jesus returns to earth and reigns, the last days have already started. We're just waiting for for Jesus' touchdown. Now is not the time to be storing up treasure, but it's to live like King Jesus is on his way, like Barnabas did. His brothers had need, and so he sold property. I'm reminded uh, 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 a few years ago, I think it's at the California Science Center, there, 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 there was an, an exhibit uh, of, from, from, from King Tutankhamun's tomb. And uh, for the pharaohs, they put in everything in there that they could need in the afterlife. Well, pharaoh, King Tut, never used all the possessions they'd put in there. He didn't need a chariot. He didn't need slaves in the afterlife. They hoarded stuff that his slaves actually needed. James says that the rich have, have, they they failed to realize the purpose of wealth. It's not to save indefinitely, but to serve sacrificially. John Calvin says, God has not appointed gold for rust. That's not the purpose of gold nor garments for moths, but on the contrary, he has designed them as aids and helps to human life. What the rich didn't need, others do. The rich were content for the rivers of God's generosity to pour into their bulging pockets. So there's judgment here. There's judgment announced for their hoarding. There's also judgment for fraud in verse 4. It's the wickedness of stealing from those who deserve to be paid. James 5, 4 says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So day laborers work each day to buy that day's food. They would not eat if they weren't paid. And the rich took advantage of those they they hired. They would go and find workers. And when their day was done, they wouldn't pay them. 
They're like, well, what are you going to do about it? They wouldn't give them what they had promised. In the first century world, the rich didn't fear the poor. They didn't, uh, there, there, there wasn't the legal system, which can still be corrupted here in the world today. But in general, if you are working at a job and your boss refuses to pay you, you, you have something to do about that. Right? You threaten to take them to court. But the poor couldn't retaliate without facing worse consequences. Their hands were tied. No human court would take on their case. But there are witnesses uh, to this crime, and God is the judge. And the first witness is their wages, it says. The wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. So it describes you know, their, their wages in the pockets of the rich, saying, justice, justice, justice. And they're pleading for God to bring justice. It's the wages, but also the harvesters. The harvesters themselves are witness. It says at the end of verse 4, The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. That's the Lord of the innumerable host of angels. His army is unstoppable, and he will bring judgment. The harvesters are powerless, but the Lord is powerful, and God will take vengeance upon oppressors. That's still true in this world to today, where there's all kinds of fraud and injustice going on, especially in countries that don't have the legal systems protecting us that we do. Malachi 3, verse 5, God says, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against those who oppress the hired workers in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts, to not pay those to whom money is due is to not fear God. It is to risk God's judgment. And you can see with these, with these sins here, uh, there's some that are a little, we might find ourselves more guilty of, perhaps like hoarding, maybe you're guilty of oppressing your workers. For all these sins, I'm going to say, I hope not. God's heart is for the oppressed. His, in, in, in his law, and uh, James mentions Leviticus 19 several times. In Leviticus 19.13, it says, You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. Don't keep that money back from those to whom it is due. God's desire is that, the, is that hard workers ought to be paid. Hard workers ought to be paid. The Lord of hosts will punish oppressors when he returns to earth. If you imagine the world, right, in all of its 8 billion people, how much injustice is going on for so many offenses and so much sin, the Lord of hosts is coming. Jesus is coming to bring judgment. There's judgment against hoarding, judgment for fraud, and there's judgment for self-indulgence. In verse 5 in the beginning it says, You've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. In luxury means to live for pleasure, to pursue the finer things. And self-indulgence, so luxury is not necessarily a bad word. It's not a positive connotation, but it wasn't necessarily sin to enjoy finer things. But in luxury and in self-indulgence, to do so without restraint, to satisfy your desires without self-control, and put together luxury and self-indulgence, that's found the seeming very 21st century America. The phrase on the earth emphasizes that time is short. You did this on the earth. This is not our final resting place. While on earth, the rich spent their resources to get what they wanted. They cultivated and satisfied a taste for better and for more. God says to to, to, to his people Israel in Exodus and Ezekiel 16, 49, Behold, this was uh, the the guilt of your sister Sodom, which, which he's using to refer to Israel there. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, 
prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They stuffed themselves while ignoring the needy. Love of self pushed out love of others. Life has become about consumption. James, again, gets a little, uh, a little uh, brusque even here at the end of verse 5. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Coming judgment is certain. The day of slaughter is the return of Christ, which is, uh, 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 is, is going to be referenced again in verse 7 refers to the Lord's coming. Judgment is often spoken in the Old Testament as slaughter. And in the New Testament too, in, um, in, in uh, Revelation 19, uh, John describes the incredible vision of Jesus riding from heaven on his white horse and, and, and his armies with him. And then it describes this in Revelation 19, 17 to 21. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God. So this is the New Testament. Like sometimes people say that, oh, you know, it's a God of wrath in the Old Testament and God of love in, in, in the New Testament. We see this is, this is God in his wrath. Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Now, God's not doing the eating here. These are the birds. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the rest were slain, verse 21, by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. That's a day of slaughter. Right? Jesus slaughters all who oppose him and all the birds of the air feast. That's what this world is going towards. That's what James is saying. You have fattened your heart in a day of slaughter. You know what is coming. What are you doing? The last days are here. In their pursuit of pleasure, the, the godless rich are like mindless cattle, fattening themselves to be slaughtered. Now, God's rebuke here of luxury and self-indulgence, this promise of judgment, are harrowing when so much pleasure is accessible to so many, right? We are, we are experiencing something unique in world history. What was only acceptable, I mean, accessible to the richest of the rich, we all can, well, I don't say all, most of us often have. Whether you are rich or not, advertisers call you to spend like you are. Luxury and self-indulgence are so entrenched in American culture as they've become a right. Right? It's, it's not just talking about having enough food is a human right. Having luxury is a right. Having self-indulgence is a right. It's deserved by everyone. In fact, some even talk about those oppressed as being those who don't get to engage in luxury and self-indulgence. Not that they don't have food. Luxury and self-indulgence have become a right in America. So we have to say, okay, I know that this is judgment on the godless here. We have to pause and say, is he talking about me? We know we need to run to Christ if we do see ourselves here. There's judgment for, for, for injustice in verse 6. So there's judgment against this hoarding and this luxury and self-indulgence, judgment uh, 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 against fraud. There's also judgment for injustice in verse 6. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. The righteous person is one whose life is characterized by obeying God's law. It's almost impossible to, to read that and not think of Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And perhaps James intends his readers to think of Jesus because Jesus was righteous and he suffered at the hands of the rich. The pattern of God's word is that the righteous poor suffer at the hands of the wicked rich. And that is the history of the world. The righteous poor suffer at the hands of the wicked rich. The rich would abuse wealth and influence to wrestle from the poor what they wanted, whether their land or their property. Perhaps the, 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 the rich would condemn the righteous. They would bring unjust claims against them in court, corrupting the legal system with bribes and with influence to get whatever money, whatever property they, they, they had from them. 
Or perhaps they murdered the righteous poor by, by stealing their, their ability to provide for themselves, by, by forcing them into debtor's prison where they would ultimately die unable to pay off their debts or as, Matt, or, or as you mentioned earlier, denying the poor their wages so that they would work but still starve. Many in America, I know that we don't get all paid for the same standard of living, but it, many in America who work don't starve. The righteous may not have resisted the rich, and it says the, they do not resist you. That could be because they couldn't resist you, right? Because they had nothing that they could do. They had no legal system backing them, right? So they, 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 they were just at the mercy of the rich, and the rich showed no kindness to them. It could also be that they didn't resist the rich because they were being persecuted as Christians, they were being persecuted for Jesus Christ. And so instead of resisting, they chose to suffer for Christ. But either way, they, 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 they didn't resist. We can rejoice that our God hates this, right? God hates when justice is corrupted. That is in the heart of our God. He hates injustice. Amos 5.12 says, for I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe, who turn aside the needy in the gate. God hates injustice. Micah 6.12, you, your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies and their tongues deceitful in their mouth. Therefore, I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. God's judgment is coming upon oppressors. Now, maybe some who use wealth uh, to condemn and murder know that they're being wicked, right? Like they're a Disney villain just kind of rubbing their hands together as they think about cruelly torturing people. But what's sad about the wicked wealthy is that they probably think they're justified, right? We see this about injustices in Americans, America's history. We're getting what we deserve, they couldn't handle that wealth if we gave it to them. We're the wise and the righteous. They're cursed by God. We're, somehow it'll come down to believing we're worthy and they're unworthy. That's what the wicked do. Now, they could just be you know, rubbing their hands together saying, I get to torture someone. Um, but probably it's more pride thinking that I deserve better than they do. So what do we do with this passage? How do we apply this passage written against the godless wicked who are going to be judged? Well, first, the immediate audience here that James is writing to were the godly oppressed, and they needed to be encouraged. They needed to be encouraged to be patient that God was going to execute justice. And James 5, verses 7 through 8, the paragraph after this, James says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmers wait for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains? You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Hang in there. Yes, you are being oppressed now. You are being thrown into prison. You are starving at the hand of the rich. Hang in there. God's going to get justice. God's holding back punishment because he's patient, waiting for those wicked rich to repent. So let, brothers and sisters, I don't know all of you. I don't know your finances. If you are working hard and unable to provide for your family's basic daily needs, not luxuries, not self-indulgence, while the rich are stockpiling profit from your labor, know that God hates what they are doing. And they will have to give an account to him. Be patient. Be encouraged. Your cries for justice will not go unheard. The Lord of hosts hears. I don't know if that applies to you this morning, but that would be so encouraging to so many of our brothers and sisters around the world right now who do not have daily need even while they work hard. Right? While the wealth, wealthy sit in palaces and they don't have enough food for their kids. Right? We serve a just God. He is going to take care of that 
when he returns. So we got to be patient. This is also, I think, particularly encouraging for us who know that our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world are suffering for their allegiance to Christ. Because financial tactics are, are key to persecution, right? As soon as someone submits to following Jesus as their Lord and Savior, their stuff could quickly no longer be theirs, right? That is going on in the world as we speak. They automatically, perhaps they go in a day from being rich to being poor, to having no home. And they're going to spend the rest of their lives, as far as they know, oppressed, maybe starving for their allegiance to Jesus Christ. Does your heart break for them a little bit? That's why this passage is here. Pray down the Lord of the harvest, right? Pray down the, uh, well, and here it's the uh, Lord of hosts. Pray to, yes, the Lord of the harvest too. We want people to be saved. Pray down the Lord of hosts, right? Jesus is going to come back with his armies and make that right. We may not feel it in the same way. Some of you may suffer that persecution. You start speaking up for things that you know are wrong at work and you lose your job. You'll probably be able to find some kind of job to take care of your family. That's not necessarily true for our brothers and sisters around the world. So be comforted. Jesus is coming back. So that's one audience, right? The godly oppressed who are waiting for judgment. But this passage is also, and it's not the primary audience, but there could have been those visiting that day. And there's many in the world today who need to hear this message to come and repent. And that's another audience. It is the godless rich. And then maybe you here this morning. A robust savings account, a large home in a safe neighborhood, pleasurable dining experiences are not evidence that God approves of your life. They are not a free pass to keep living the way that you want. If your life is ruled by money, whether by, by security it buys or the pleasure it buys, if your life is ruled by money, this passage says misery is coming upon you. You are stuck in those train tracks. If you are stealing from the poor, if you are corrupting justice to build your kingdom, judgment is on its way. And this may not describe, all four of these may not describe you. You may not be like, I got three out of four, I'm okay. I think we should be concerned if it's one out of four. You have to ask yourself, does this describe me? If you are consumed with wealth and the freedom it can buy you, beware. Jesus says you cannot serve God and money. Matthew 6, 24. Jesus pronounces God's disapproval on you, if that is you here this morning. He says in Luke 6, 24 to 25, Woe to you who are rich. You are under judgment, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. If your life is just filled with this life and its pleasures, woe to you. Turn to Jesus Christ and be saved. Your money will not do you good when Christ calls you to account. If he comes back today, Ezekiel 7.19 describes this, this, this horrible picture of, of judgment. The rich cast their silver into the streets, and their gold is like an unclean thing. They can't get, wait to get rid of it. Their silver and gold, though, are not able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. It's too late, for it was the stumbling block of their iniquity. Don't let silver and gold be a stumbling block of iniquity to you. And please, parents, be guarding your kids against this, too. They are living in the world of luxury and self-indulgence. So let me ask you, are you someone who hoards wealth? Have you lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence? Have you cheated others out of what was theirs because you could get away with it? Or you could say all this together, have you served money rather than Christ? Because that's really what's going on in the heart there, serving money rather than Christ. If you don't repent, misery is coming upon you. But if you do repent, there is rescue for you in Jesus Christ. Jesus is willing to save you from coming destruction. If you looked at one, any one of these four, and you're like, my conscience is heavy here. Look to Jesus Christ. He is willing to save. Don't be like the rich young, young ruler. Um, it's Matthew 19, 21 to, to, to 22. And he wanted to know what he needed to get to have eternal life. 
but he refused to follow Christ because he didn't want to lose his possessions. Jesus said to him, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. And the young man heard this. He went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. He kept on to his stuff rather than following Christ. He wasn't willing to give that up and trust Jesus. Instead, we should repent like Zacchaeus did. Luke 19.8, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it, restore it fourfold. I can't wait to get rid of my sin, Lord. Instead of, I love this so much, I can't leave it. Like the rich young ruler. See, how they were attached to money or their willingness to leave money revealed their willingness to follow Jesus. Matthew 19, 23 to 26, Jesus said to his disciples, Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. I, I know that many of you would say, I'm the rich. I know there's someone richer than all of us here. But as a people, in the people of the world, we are the rich. Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, which, by the way, is impossible, than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples get it. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. It is impossible for you to save yourself, but God can save you. You can't change your hoarding heart. You can't change your craving heart. You can't change your self-serving heart, but Jesus can. God promises in Ezekiel 36, 26, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That heart of stone is a heart of stone against God, but it's also a heart of stone against our fellow humans in need. He gives us a heart of stone that is alive to him, loving him and loving others. This is the work that God does. You can't do it yourself. So if you see in me, wealth is so wrapped up in this heart and I despair of that. Turn to him and he will save you. He is willing to forgive you and he is willing to make you clean if you go to him for salvation. That's why Jesus died on the cross. We're gonna celebrate that in a couple minutes in the Lord's Supper. So this passage is a warning to the godless rich. It's comfort for the godly oppressed. Hang in there. But the passage is also a caution to all believers about the place of money in our hearts. And I think you probably feel some of that caution. I'm just going to read a couple paragraphs here. And you can look at a, them, them, them again later. And I'll include them in the email that, that went out. If you look for the questions for after service follow-up, they're, 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 they're not up yet. I'll put them up, up later. Um, but one thing, for all of us, a caution. We know that the godless rich are facing judgment. And so do you covet riches? Do you wish you were richer? More independence, better neighborhood, better car, Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10. Write that verse down. I'm not going to explain this. It speaks for itself. It's a good passage. But godliness, that's 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. I don't want you to wander away from the faith. I don't want to wander away from the faith. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. So don't covet riches. Second, if you are rich, how should you think about the money that God has entrusted you? As a lot of us are by the world standards rich. 
So how should you think about that money? 1 Timothy 6, it's a great chapter. Has, has some good help for us. 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 to 19. As for the rich in this present age, believers, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, our hope is not in our savings account, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. You see some thankfulness there. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So don't covet riches. But here, 1 Timothy 6, 17, 19, what we should do with riches, not put our hopes in them, to be generous, ready to share, take hold of that what's truly life. Not this life, eternal life. If you follow the trail of your money, you will learn the location of your heart. Right? That should be very encouraging for some of you by God's grace. For some of you, it may be a warning. Matthew 6, 19 to 20 says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. This is where we want our treasure in heaven. Luke 12, 33 to 34, Jesus challenged them, sell your possessions and give to the needy. So cool. That's exactly what Bartimaeus did. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The trail of our treasure reveals the home of our heart. So what place do wealth and possessions have in your hearts, brothers and sisters? Let's pray. Father, we... uh, Thank you for your word. And Lord, there are different uh, responses. So we pray for our brothers and sisters who are oppressed, those who have placed their faith in you and do not have enough food. We ask, Lord, that you comfort them, you encourage them, that they would, in a sense, hang in there waiting for the Lord of hosts to return. And we do praise you that you bring judgment, and your judgment is just and righteous and perfect. These are one of the things Jesus is going to make right on this earth. So we look forward to that, Father. Father, we pray uh, for those who are maybe even here this morning, um, rich and money's filled their hearts. Lord, you know you've blessed us as Americans so much. So many of us have more than we need. Maybe we don't eat the finest restaurants. Many of us could go and buy a burger at McDonald's right now. Father, we pray that we would take this warning seriously. Help us to examine our hearts and to make sure that we are truly in Christ. Because we don't want misery. Jesus came to suffer misery in our place. And Father, we pray for us, Lord, um, that, that, that as those who are saved, Lord, we do pray that we would have a right relationship to money and that our money would reveal where our heart is. In Jesus' name, amen.